Welcome to the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, Board Certified Specialist in Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia and U.S. Director of Technical Services at Jurox Animal Health Incorporated. This podcast is race approved for continuing education for veterinarians and veterinary technicians and nurses. Please visit the podcast description at www.thinkanesthesia.education for more information on how to complete the requirements to obtain your CE certificate for this podcast. As a matter of full disclosure, I need to remind you that I am an employee of Jurox Incorporated. The content of this podcast represents the best in evidence-based and peer-reviewed medicine. Some content may be the opinion of Jurox Incorporated, a subsidiary of Jurox Proprietary Limited, and its technical services department. In our previous podcast episodes, we discussed preparing your patient for anesthesia and what important points to consider when developing an appropriate pre-medication plan that provides adequate sedation and analgesia. We also discussed the commonly used anesthesia induction and maintenance drugs for both dogs and cats. We are now ready for the next step in the anesthesia process, recovery from anesthesia. Recovery begins when the maintenance anesthetic is discontinued. Most often this occurs when the anesthetic vaporizer is turned off. The recovery period in the hospital ends when the patient is fully awake, comfortable, and pain-free. In addition, the anesthetist needs to be convinced that the patient can now be left unattended in its kennel or cage. Moreover, if we consider recovery from the owner's point of view, recovery actually ends at home when the owner feels that their pet's cognition and behavior is back to normal. It is also during the recovery period that your patient is at high risk for complications, including death. A 2008 prospective cohort study by Broadbelt et al. published in Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia determined that the post-operative period was the most common time for cats and dogs to die. Nearly 50% of dog deaths and over 60% of cat deaths during the anesthetic period occurred during the recovery period, with death occurring more frequently in the first three hours of the post-operative period. We must recognize that the recovery period is a time where we cannot lessen our vigilance in patient monitoring and support. Now, our current patient is Roxy, and we have been developing her anesthetic plan in previous podcast episodes. She is our happy, friendly Cocker Spaniel requiring anesthesia for a dental procedure. We know that she is healthy, no cardiac, renal, or hepatic dysfunction, and she is not aggressive or fearful, but does struggle when restrained. We developed an appropriate pre-medication plan to provide sedation and analgesia. Roxy was calm and relaxed, and following pre-oxygenation, we induced anesthesia with a rapid-acting intravenous drug and maintained anesthesia with an inhalant anesthetic. Throughout maintenance of anesthesia, we continuously assessed Roxy's status and anesthetic depth and intervened when required. At the end of the procedure, we will discontinue the inhalant anesthetic and now are prepared to monitor Roxy as she recovers from anesthesia, including recording any interventions and drug administration in the anesthetic monitoring chart. When recovering patients from anesthesia, you should continue to monitor and record important physiological parameters, such as heart and respiratory rate, oxygen saturation of hemoglobin using a pulse oximeter, entitled carbon dioxide using a capnometer, and body temperature. A full bladder can be very uncomfortable, therefore the early recovery period is a good time to carefully express and empty the bladder. 
and I recommend leaving the IV catheter in place with a secure bandage until the patient is fully awake. Now, Roxy will not be extubated until her respiratory rate and oxygen saturation are normal. She must also be able to protect her own airway, which is when we observe her swallowing vigorously. We will not deflate the endotracheal tube until immediately prior to extubation. This is because there is a risk of aspiration. If regurgitation has occurred during anesthesia and regurgitated material has collected proximal to the cuff. Since Roxy has had a dental procedure, we also want to be sure there isn't any fluid or debris in the pharyngeal region. We may also want to position her nose a bit lower than the back of her head to encourage drainage of fluids and particulates from the mouth. This is a good time to discuss extubation of our feline patients. Cats can develop laryngospasm easily, especially if we wait too long to extubate. However, we also want the cat to be able to protect their own airway. Therefore, I will extubate cats when I see the first sign that the cat is about to cough or swallow. The cat should be able to strongly cough by the time the endotracheal tube is removed. But what about our brachycephalic patients? For these patients that are high risk for upper airway obstruction, extubation is delayed as long as possible. I'm sure you have all experienced the English Bulldog, who is not only sternal and able to lift its own head, but may even be ambulatory before willing to give up their endotracheal tube. Following extubation of the brachycephalic patient, even if the patient is fully awake and ambulatory, you will need to have drugs and supplies immediately available should upper airway obstruction occur, and you need to quickly reanesthetize and reintubate the patient. But let's get back to Roxy. Following extubation, a pulse oximeter can be used to continually assess oxygenation. Because the patient may be moving their tongue, you may need to be creative in finding an alternative site to place the pulse oximeter probe. The lip, toe, or ear pinna may give you a reliable reading depending on skin pigmentation, patient movement, and body temperature. Ideally, we will move Roxy to an area of the clinic without bright lights and loud noise. Now this can be challenging in a busy clinic, but continuous assessment of the patient's environmental requirements can significantly improve the quality of recovery. Wherever your patients are recovered, be sure to have emergency drugs and supplies immediately available. You also want to be able to obtain help quickly if a crisis occurs, so do not be too isolated from other clinic staff. A common reason for a rough recovery is that the patient is experiencing pain. Patients recovering from dental procedures with extractions would have received analgesic drugs as pre-medication and likely during the procedure as well. Ideally, local anesthetic blocks would have also have been included in the anesthetic plan. But what if Roxy is having a rough recovery? What we never want to experience is a situation where the patient arouses, her eyes are wide open, and she begins to vocalize and thrash as soon as the endotracheal tube is removed. It's then a mad rush to safely restrain the patient to prevent her from launching herself off the gurney, and now you need to quickly determine the cause for this violent recovery and appropriately treat that cause. But how can we differentiate pain from other possible causes for a rough recovery? This can be challenging, especially since there can be more than one cause present. Pain can be assessed during recovery by gently palpating the surgical site or incision. But this is obviously difficult in the dental patient. If you suspect your patient is painful, it is better to administer an analgesic drug, such as a full muagonist opioid, than to risk leaving pain untreated. You can then wait a few minutes to see if the patient settles down. If still agitated or vocalizing, you can then administer a low dose of a sedative, such as dexmedetomidine or acepromazine. 
Emergence delirium is when a patient is generally unaware of its surroundings. They may show an acute onset of hyperarousal, excitation, agitation, and vocalize or thrash violently. Typically, emergence delirium is observed when no premedication sedation was administered to the patient or it was given so long ago that its sedative effects have waned. Patients typically regain consciousness quickly after the inhalant maintenance anesthetic agent is discontinued. As such, rapid arousal can trigger delirium, which will often respond to gentle restraint and comforting by the caregiver. After a few minutes, when the patient becomes more aware of its surroundings, they will tend to settle down. If not, you can administer a low dose of a sedative, such as dexamethasone or acepromazine. Other causes of emergence delirium include pain, hypoxia, severe hypercapnia, hypoglycemia, and even bladder distension. The most effective way to treat emergence delirium is to prevent its occurrence. Prior to discontinuing the maintenance anesthetic agent or early in the recovery period, be sure to eliminate any potential causes of emergence delirium by expressing the bladder, placing the patient in a comfortable body position, no extreme joint flexion or extension, administration of anti-nausea medication, and using external warming devices to prevent hypothermia. You may also need to evaluate the timing and effects of your premedication drugs. If a significant period of time has elapsed since you administered the premedication drugs, or if little sedation was observed prior to induction, or a painful procedure was performed and it's been a while since an analgesic drug was administered, then you should consider administering a sedative or analgesic drug early in the recovery period. Another potential cause of a rough recovery is post-anesthetic dysphoria. In dogs, you may see excitement, agitation, disorientation, and vocalization. Cats may be restless and pace in their cage or carrier. Dysphoria is often associated with the administration of full muagonous opioids, which can occur if you incorrectly assess your patient as being painful. Given the opioid not only failed to resolve the situation, but may have actually made the patient worse. In this situation, I will consider administering a low dose of a sedative, such as dexamethasone or acepromazine. I may also consider partially reversing the effects of the full muagonous opioid by titrating a low dose of butorphanol, IV, slowly to effect. Butorphanol will antagonize the mu receptor, but will still provide some analgesia through its effects on the kappa opioid receptor. Complete reversal of a full muagonist opioid is discouraged in the painful patient and should only be done in the event of an opioid overdose or all other treatment options have failed. Benzodiazepines such as diazepam and midazolam may also cause excitement and dysphoria in our patients, so I avoid these when managing a rough recovery. Neuroexcitatory symptoms such as twitching, myoclonic movements, opisthotonus, and seizure-like activity can be seen during recovery. These clinical signs have been reported in human and veterinary patients following the use of propofol, alfaxlone, or etomidate for induction of anesthesia. It is thought to be due to an imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory pathways or reduced inhibitory output from the brain. These effects may be transient and resolve on their own, but treatment options include recovering the patient in a quiet environment and administering a low dose of a sedative such as dexamethasone or acepromazine. A prolonged recovery can be due to pharmacologic, metabolic, or neurologic factors. A pharmacologic factor causing a prolonged recovery is from the residual effects of anesthetic drugs administered during the perianesthetic period. 
We have been saying that anesthesia starts at home. This means that our patients may have been given sedatives and anxiolytic medications by the owner starting the day before or morning of admission to your clinic. Additional sedatives may have been administered immediately prior to anesthesia, as well as opioids administered before and during anesthesia for analgesia and for their max-bearing effects. Even the inhalant anesthetic can contribute to a prolonged recovery if it was delivered for a long period of time and hypoventilation occurs during recovery, resulting in slower elimination of the inhalant. Hypothermia, decreased cardiac output, and hepatic renal impairment will also contribute to delayed metabolism and elimination of drugs. Metabolic factors affecting recovery from anesthesia are too numerous to address in this podcast, Therefore, we will discuss the most commonly seen factors in our recovering patients. This list includes respiratory or metabolic acidosis. Cerebral acidosis has been associated with altered mental state, which can delay emergence from anesthesia. Hypoglycemia is always towards the top of my list when I have a patient having a delayed recovery. Hypoglycemia can occur secondary to prolonged fasting, especially in neonates and pediatric patients, insulin administration, sepsis, and liver disease. With the brain totally dependent on glucose for energy, hypoglycemia manifests as irritability, seizures, and coma. Hyperglycemia can occur in diabetic patients and can result in an osmotic diuresis and intracellular dehydration. Effects of dehydration include drowsiness and acidosis. Hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency have also been associated with delayed recovery from anesthesia. Electrolyte abnormalities that should be considered include decreased or elevated calcium or magnesium concentrations. A prolonged recovery may also be due to neurologic factors. These include global or regional ischemia from cerebral hypo or hyperperfusion, hypoxia, hydrocephalus, or elevated intracranial pressure. Hypercoagulable states and cardiac disease can result in a thromboembolic event, resulting in delayed emergence from anesthesia. If you have a patient that is not recovering in the time period that you would expect, which is based on patient status, drugs administered during anesthesia, and the duration and complications of anesthesia, you should systematically evaluate the patient to determine the most likely cause. This is done by remembering your ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. Evaluate, maintain, and protect the airway. Reintubation may be required. Ventilate to maintain a normal entitled carbon dioxide and assess heart rate, blood pressure, and perfusion. Continuing with the alphabet, D is for drugs. Review all medications that the patient has received perioperatively and consider reversing those drugs that increase the likelihood of sedation, but still ensure that adequate analgesia is present. E is for electrolytes. Check blood glucose, sodium, magnesium, and calcium concentrations. F is for failure to find a cause, and neurologic function should be evaluated. A focused neurological exam in the recovering patient includes examining the pupil size, checking that they're equal in size and react to light, and presence of a gag or cough. G is for get up. Some patients may need a bit of encouragement to awaken from anesthesia. Placing them in sternal recumbency and with their head elevated will help them more oriented to their surroundings. And H is for hypothermia. Always strive to maintain normal body temperature with the use of external warming devices and blankets. Be sure to monitor and record body temperature at regular intervals. I want to now spend a moment to discuss hyperthermia, specifically in cats during recovery. Post-anesthesia rebound hyperthermia has been reported in cats with body temperatures as high as 106 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. 
It was first suspected that hydromorphone was primarily to blame for this phenomenon, but administration of other opioids, as well as ketamine, was shown to result in an increase in body temperature as well. It has also been shown that cats that become hypothermic during anesthesia tend to be significantly more hyperthermic during recovery. If your patient develops hyperthermia, treatment is generally supportive. This may include sedation with acepromazine, which results in vasodilation that promotes heat loss, removing any external warming devices, wetting with lukewarm water, and using a fan. If full mu agonist opioids were administered, titrating an opioid antagonist drug such as naloxone may be considered, but even without intervention, most patients will return to normothermia in a few hours. Now let's get back to Roxy. We will monitor Roxy as she recovers from anesthesia from her dental procedure and continuously assess her vital signs and pain status. We will also be ready to treat pain or virgin's delirium with appropriate sedation or analgesic drugs. Because we included both sedation and analgesia in our premedication plan and the procedure was not lengthy or involved, we expect Roxy to have a smooth recovery. However, we have a plan in place and drugs readily available should the need arise. Roxy will recover in a quiet area with comfortable padding and blankets for warmth. Someone will remain with Roxy until she is awake, her pain is controlled, and her physiological status is stable. Roxy can be discharged home to her owner when she is able to ambulate. As a final step in the anesthesia process, her owner will be given complete written discharge instructions that are easy to understand. The instructions include letting them know that Roxy may experience some sedation for the first 12 to 24 hours, but should be easily aroused and perform her normal functions. Her appetite may be decreased, and she may have a slight cough due to the endotracheal tube. Roxy's owner will be instructed to contact us if her activity or appetite doesn't return to normal within 24 hours, if she has persistent or productive cough, or if there are any other concerns regarding Roxy's behavior. Therefore, as you can see, anesthesia truly does end at home. We have now come full circle with Roxy's care. From thorough pre-anesthetic evaluation, careful preparation and use of safety checklists, and developing an individualized anesthetic plan that provides sedation and analgesia, Roxy experienced a smooth induction and stable maintenance of anesthesia, and we continued our vigilance in monitoring and support throughout her recovery period. Her owner was included as part of the caregiver team by being informed on what to expect when Roxy returns home. You now have a happy patient and a satisfied client who will not hesitate to return to your clinic for Roxy's future healthcare needs. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education podcast series brought to you by Jurox Animal Health. Jurox is committed to improving the quality of anesthesia globally. As a part of this commitment, we have produced a series of race-approved CE content. Be sure to visit thinkanesthesia.education for a listing of CE material, including podcasts. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, and remember, when you think anesthesia, think Jurox.